in the sci-fi thriller Aliens That's the second movie. I think it is on. Yes. A marine rescue team from from Earth faces off against hostile alien monsters that inflict serious carnage on the team. Amazingly, a small girl named Newt, cool name, Newt, is discovered on the planet as the lone survivor of this prior colony. Well, after a particularly bad encounter with the aliens, Newt informs the civilian consultant for the team named Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. He's trying to help you out. Played by Sigourney Weaver. That the team needs to quickly get back to a safe place. But why? Well, her reply is classic. We better get back because it will be dark soon. And they mostly come out at night. Mostly. Newt was right. Monsters mostly come out at night. Mostly. They come out at night when it's dark. They come out at night when we lie in our beds. And they come out at night in our dreams while we sleep. As the prophet Daniel will soon explain. We are over the hump in the book of Daniel. And this morning, as we move into the last half of this book, we are moving into a section where Daniel presents a series of prophetic visions, revelations, concerning world history and what is to come. Now, as I have said before, especially when we were studying the book of Revelation, you remember that? I tend to take the Bible literally until it is clear it is not to be taken literally. And beginning with this chapter in Daniel, we will be working our way through some apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing which is filled with all kinds of 
imagery that are clearly symbolic in nature. What Daniel gives us is somewhat challenging and mysterious, prompting all kinds of views. And this morning, as the opportunity presents itself, I will share two views. I will share two views with you, one of which is historical or traditional, and the other view which is contemporary. Okay? Two views. One which is historical, the other which is contemporary. So if you're a note taker, I would just suggest you draw a line down the middle of your paper and I will be hitting both sides. Okay? That makes sense? And I pray to God I don't confuse anybody. So if you have your Bible, and I gave you homework last week, if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, and we'll begin with verse 1. Daniel 7, we'll begin with verse 1, where Daniel has a flashback. He has a flashback in time. Okay? We are told. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Back in the first year of the Babylonian king Belshazzar, hopefully remember that name, this is before he had his wild party. Remember that party that God crashed with the handwriting on the wall? That party? This is before that, okay? Daniel laid in his bed one night, and he had, I'm just going to describe it as a monstrous dream. In his dream, he saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Usually, the great sea would refer to the Mediterranean Sea, which is the largest body of water in that region. Okay, But in this context, the great sea might be better understood as the Sea of Humanity. Okay, 
the sea of humanity referring to the people of the world, namely the Gentiles. So the, the sea of humanity is being stirred up. There's turmoil in it. And it's God's doing. He's stirring it up. Then Daniel continues in verse 3. And he tells us that in his dream, something comes out of the sea and it's not the little mermaid and her cute aquatic friends. He says, verse 3, and four great beasts were coming from the sea different from one another. We are told that out of this turbulent sea of humanity emerge four great beasts, which are symbolic... Here we start with the symbolism, which are symbolic of kingdoms. Shown to Daniel and described to us in, in terms in which we can somewhat understand. And we know these beasts are symbolic of kingdoms because later in this chapter... We are specifically told they are kings who personify kingdoms. They are kingdoms. Okay? Now, as I said earlier, I want to share two views concerning these great kingdoms or empires. I like to call them empires. Empires, if you will. And generally speaking, from a historical point of view, so we're going to start, historical, it is believed these four great empires are the same four great empires described back in chapter 2. I'll bring you up to speed. If you recall in that chapter, chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a reoccurring dream. An unsettling dream. And in his dream, the king saw this colossal and glorious statue of a man. Remember that? The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. And its feet, partly of iron, and partly of clay like pottery. Okay? If you remember, Daniel interpreted 
a dream explaining that this statue represented four great Gentile empires who will rule the known world up to up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Empires which will follow one another in succession, okay? Empires that will follow one another chronologically in succession, beginning with the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. If you recall, Daniel told him, the head of gold is you. That's the starting point. That was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar interpreted by Daniel. It was a dream from the perspective of man. And from man's perspective, these empires symbolized by this statue appeared awesome and wondrous. But here in chapter 7, remember, I'm giving you a historical view, here in chapter 7, these same empires are described from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, these empires are not awesome and wondrous. These empires look more like beasts. They are monstrous. So from a historical view, I don't want to confuse anybody. From a historical view, the empires here in chapter 7 are the same empires in chapter 2, just seen from a different perspective. Are you with me? Now, from the contemporary point of view, it is suggested these empires portrayed as beasts are not the same empires in chapter 2. And they do not follow each other in, in succession. Instead, they are all present at the same time. At the end of time, just before the return of Jesus Christ. This idea comes from passages such as verse 7, which reads, should be on the screen. Is it there? Okay. Let me read this. This is Daniel talking. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. See that? 
This is a reference by Daniel of the fourth beast. And if you noticed on the last line, all the beasts were what? Before it. You see that? They are before the fourth beast. That word before does not mean this before that, as in chronological sequence. Instead, it refers to presence, as in standing before a superior. So it's from words like this that those with a contemporary view make their case. And just so you know, I'm going on a pity party right now. Expect a hug later. Just so you know, I spent two very frustrating days on that one little word. Trying to make sense of it. Trying to reconcile it. And in all honesty, it gave me cause for pause. It gave me cause for pause. If anything, This is just a small example of some of the challenges with prophecy. Our views are not always airtight. But be that may, can't stop here, we need to press on and look at these beasts starting with the first one in verse 4. Okay, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. There's a picture, artist rendition of that. According to Daniel, this first beast looked, this is important, like a lion. Okay? He's not saying it's a lion. Looked like, symbolic, looked like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. From the historical point of view, this first beast represents the Babylonian Empire, consistent with the head of gold on the statue in chapter 2, like I've already said. And also in the Bible, prophets like Jeremiah 
and Ezekiel and, and Habakkuk identify Babylon as both a lion and an eagle. What's also interesting to note is that in archaeological digs around the ruins of Babylon, they have found images of a lion with wings. Can you bring it up? This is an example. This is an example of what appears to be the Babylonian national emblem. You see that? Lion with wings. Now we are told, <coughs> excuse me, that as Daniel watched, <coughs> excuse me, this lion had its wings plucked. And it stood up like a man, and a human mind was given to it. Most conservative commentators say this is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation where his pride caused him to think and to live like an animal for seven years, and afterwards, after finally giving glory to God, his sanity and his empire was restored to him. Be with me. I don't want to lose anybody. So according to those who take a historical view. This first beast is symbolic of the Babylonian Empire. But that doesn't sit well with those who prescribe to a contemporary view. Because the prophetic timing seems way off. Jumping ahead to verse 17. Jumping ahead to verse 17. It should be on the screen. We are told these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings or kingdoms. We've already talked about that. Who will arise from the earth. These kings or kingdoms, depending on your translation, will arise. That's future tense. Will arise. When Daniel had his dream, the Babylonian Empire was already well established under Nebuchadnezzar and several Babylonian kings after him. How can Daniel see this first beast as coming out of the sea, something apparently in the future when the Babylonian Empire was already ruling the known world for quite some time? It's a problem. And therefore, it's thought that this vision by Daniel pertains solely to the end time. Our time. 
our time. And the lion standing on two feet, this is where the speculation starts, and the lion standing on two feet, can you put up the image, the lion standing on two feet could be a nation like Great Britain, whose national symbol is a lion on two feet. And the plucked eagle's wings may represent a shift from their once great military power to an intellectual power, or to really hit home, as some suggest, the eagle's wings which are plucked could be America. America, who gained independence from Great Britain and yet remains allied with them. Something to think about. Just something to think about, isn't it? Absolutely. Anyway, let's continue. Then Daniel sees another beast. And in verse 5 we are told, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Got a picture? Yeah. From a historical point of view, consistent with the statue in chapter 2, I'm always coming back to there, consistent with the statue in chapter 2, this bear is symbolic of the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed in succession behind the Babylonian Empire. Like a bear, The Medo-Persian Empire was ferocious and brutal and with an army of two and a half million soldiers, it was overwhelming in power and crushing in their conquests. We're told this bear was raised up on one side, meaning this union between the Medes and the Persians was unbalanced. It was unbalanced, dominated by the Persians who would eventually swallow up, absorb the Medes. As far as the three ribs in its mouth, it could simply represent their voracious appetite for conquest, or as many believe, it is a reference to three of their great military campaigns against Babylon, against Egypt, and against Lydia, which is Western Asia Minor. Okay? That's the historical view. That's the historical view. What about the contemporary view? 
Well, as you can probably guess, the bear may represent who? Yes. I don't know why a bear has been attached to Russia, but it, but it is, right? Whenever we think of the bear, we think of Russia, who currently appears unapologetic when it comes to bloodshed, right? And seemingly, just brazenly bent on the expansion of territory, apparently to reclaim its once former glory as the Soviet Union. With regard to the ribs in his mouth, I have no idea. I don't even know what to do with that. Don't want to speculate. Now we come to the third beast. I know, it is funny, isn't it? (laughs) In verse 6, Daniel tells us, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. From a historical point of view, this third beast is symbolic of the Grecian Empire under the command of Alexander the Great. Under his leadership, the Greek armies moved like lightning. Like a leopard, they were cunning and swift in their conquest. And even with smaller numbers, they defeated the mighty Persian army because, we are told, God gave them dominion. It was a God thing. He gave them dominion. By the age of 26, Alexander the Great ruled the known world. 26. He's ruling the known world, but at the age of 33, he died a victim of his own miserable lusts. So what about the four wings and the four heads? Well, upon Alexander's death, without an heir, without an heir, the Grecian Empire was divided among the four leading generals. History bears that out. Now with this one, the contemporary view gets crazy with all kinds of mind-numbing speculation. Some suggest this leopard with four heads and four bird's wings is a confederation of Asian nations. Others say it's a, it's a union of Middle Eastern powers who control oil and natural gas. Some claim it's Germany and France, while others suggest it's China. Again, it's all wild speculation, and to me it feels like people are trying to force a square peg into a round hole to make it fit Daniel's prophecy. I I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to add to any of the confusion. Okay. 
So we'll just move on. That's what we do. <laughs> we just move on. If I can't deal with it, we just move on. All these beasts we have seen thus far we would call freaks of nature. But nothing is more freakish than the fourth one. Instead of comparing it to some known animal or animals, Daniel simply called it a beast. That's the best he could do. It's a beast. But according to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it appears to be some sort of mongrel. It's a mongrel composed of the traits of the lion, of a bear, and of a leopard. In other words, this fourth empire combines the strength, the brutality, and the swiftness of the other three. This one should be of most interest to you and me. And it certainly was to Daniel. And it's here, it's here I think, thank God, the historical and the contemporary views converge. Thank you, Jesus. Beginning with verse 7, Daniel tells us, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold... A fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. This fourth beast is symbolic of the Roman Empire. Symbolic of the Roman Empire who followed in succession after the Greeks. And they were different from the rest in their strength, in their scope of dominion, and in their longevity of rule. They lasted longer than the other three empires combined. The Romans were dreadful and brutal and extremely powerful. And with its iron legions corresponding with the legs of iron on the statue in chapter 2, they smashed to pieces all who stood before them. 
They killed thousands upon thousands and they sold hundreds of thousands into slavery. Eventually, the empire crumbled from within due to corruption and immorality. But no world empire has ever taken its place. It did not disappear like the other empires. It just lost its dominion. Which leads many to believe that still in the future, in a unique form, there will emerge a revived Roman Empire consistent with the last part of the statue in chapter 2 where Daniel saw the feet. Remember the feet. Mixed with iron, symbolic of the Romans, and mixed with clay. And presumably these feet had ten toes. This revived empire is different from the others. Even different from the old Roman Empire because we are told it has ten horns. And in the Bible, horns mean power. Although the old Roman Empire had many providences under its rule, there is no record there was a ten-part empire. And therefore, we must consider something in the future, in the latter days, in our days. This revived Roman Empire may be, may be in the form of a European Union made up of a federation of ten nations. Maybe there, there are ten economic regions in the world that unite together. Or maybe there is another type of ten-part group. But whatever it is, it is symbolized by these ten horns of power. Well, Daniel has more to tell us. And by pulling from the latter verses in this chapter to fill in some of the details that Daniel asked for, we learn that out of these ten horns, another horn. An eleventh horn will come up from among them and he will overpower three of them. And he becomes the dominant force of this coalition. This eleventh horn we know as the Antichrist. During the tribulation period, he starts out small. He starts out as a peacemaker. He looks like a hero on a white horse. 
He's one of the good guys. And he rises up on the world stage and becomes more powerful than all the others, boastfully tooting his own horn, so to speak, and blaspheming God in the process. He will, he will be empowered by Satan to do impressive works and wonders. And during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, he will become a dictator, subduing the whole world, even declaring himself God. If you remember, in our study of Revelation, Anti, as in Antichrist, anti means against, but it also means in place of. It means against and in place of. The Antichrist wants to take the place of Christ. And sure enough, he will gain a massive following, and he will wage war against the saints, particularly the Jews, who finally come to accept Jesus as their Messiah. It's a dark time in Daniel's dream. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, it turns sharply from these Gentile empires to the everlasting kingdom of Christ, which is to follow. Beginning with verse 9, we read, I kept looking. This is Daniel talking. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Daniel's dream shifts to heaven and he sees the Ancient of Days. God the Father. In His holiness. In His majesty. In His glory. And in His power. Heavenly hosts are attending to Him. Unimaginable numbers are standing before Him and he takes the throne to hold court. God sits as the judge, and the books are opened. God has books. God has books. 
God is a perfect bookkeeper. And he doesn't miss a single thing. Ever. And I thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace. Then suddenly, without any elaboration, the fourth beast is killed. His body is destroyed. He's cast into the lake of fire and his government ceases to exist. It's annihilated. Completely annihilated. The other previous empires, even though they had lost their dominion, they had still lived on as part of the kingdom that had conquered them. But not so for the government of the Antichrist. There will be nothing left of it. Everything about it will be as if it never existed. Wiped out. Gone. Annihilated. Daniel continues. And beginning with verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Sound like Psalm chapter 2? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man. A title Jesus called Himself many times comes before the Ancient of Days. Jesus comes before the Father. And just as the Father had promised, He gives His Son the kingdom. An everlasting kingdom which will not pass away. The time of the Gentiles comes to an end and the kingdom of Christ begins with no end. Jesus is coming. And when He comes... He rules. You know, Satan tried to give this earthly kingdom to Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. Satan offered Jesus a shortcut. An easy way to avoid the cross but Jesus would not take it. And thank God He didn't. For where would that leave us? Jesus went to the cross. He paid for His kingdom and He paid for His people in full. In full. And one day, He's coming back to take possession of what and who are rightfully His.
So how are we to deal with this? I can tell you it's not to look for the Antichrist. Even though this person may very well be here today. We don't need to know who he is. Or to add to the wild speculations that circulate among us. But there are two things we should do. Two things. First, Jesus told his followers to keep working. To keep working until he returns. Keep working. We got things to do. We got kingdom things to do. His kingdom. We got good news to share. We got things to do. We're to keep working. Secondly, Jesus tells us to keep watching. Keep working, keep watching. When we see all these things happening that are setting up the stage for the Antichrist and they are happening, if you are paying any attention, it's not time to freak out. It's not time to freak out. Instead, it reminds us that Jesus is right around the corner to gather his people. That's the good news. So get ready. Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray I confused no one. And Father, if I did, I apologize. Father, I'm just, I'm just, I'm so grateful that Jesus is coming for us. And it's soon. I don't care what happens in this world. We're just passing through it anyway. This is not our home. We have a heavenly home and a heavenly inheritance. It's ours. So, Father, we look forward to that day when Jesus comes for us. Father, in the meantime, give us a passion to do your work. Give us a zeal for the things of God. Help us to trust you and obey you to do your work. Father, may you be honored and glorified in us. And Father, I pray that you give us opportunities to share who you are with someone else who does not know. Give us the opportunities. Help us to seize them and to share the good news. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope I did not... It, just, it, is, it was a concern for me all week that I might confuse, confuse you. But I felt like I, I, I was supposed to. I needed to give you a couple of views instead of just my own. That's what happens. <laughs> That's right. No. no. 
Again, I, I hope I can you. And, and if, I would love, I love talking about this stuff. And so if you have questions, I would love to, we can, we can just go back and forth. And you know what? Here's the good thing about this. Uh, we can agree to disagree on many things, right? Absolutely. But here's the good thing about what we just covered. We know how it all ends. Irrespective of what view you might take, whether it's a historical view or a contemporary view or, or something else, one day, all these Gentile empires will come to an end and Christ will come and establish His kingdom. That's consistent with every view. Has to be. That's great news. Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready? Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Man, he wants you to know him so so bad. I would love to talk to you about him. Just talk. I'm not going to beat you over the head with the Bible. Just talk. I would love to talk with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Some place you can commit to. Some place you can serve. Some place you can worship. We'd love to have you here. Or maybe there's just something else. Maybe my message disturbs you. Disturbed me. Just ask my wife. And you just need prayer. You just got to talk about it. You don't know where you stand. I would love to chat with you again. However the Lord leads you this morning, I just ask that you'd respond to Him, trust Him, and obey Him. Let Him do the rest. Larry?